0: For today's scripture reading, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 to chapter 7 verse 1. In your Pew Bibles, this can be found on page 819. 2 Corinthians 6:14 Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people therefore come out from them and be separate says the Lord touch no unclean thing and I will receive you I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty Almighty since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of the out of the reverence of for God. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: So last night I found myself in a somewhat amusing situation, potentially amusing, because I've been uh, up and down with the flu since so Thursday. And last night I was pretty feeling pretty mopey about the whole thing. So I'm thinking, You know, I have to prepare for a backup for this morning. And uh, it's easy enough to pass off the infant dedication to Pastor David, but then the sermon, you know, it takes a while to prepare a sermon. What do I do with that? And so, i you know, Pastor Caleb is preaching, preached the same passage in CM this morning. And his English is fine, but, you know, he doesn't feel entirely comfortable speaking. It's more his issue than it is ours. You know, we're quite happy enough to have him to speak to us in English. But he's not entirely comfortable with this. so i thought do i create unnecessary anxiety for him on a saturday night saying i may not be good to go sunday morning and you know get him all worried about it or do i wait until sunday morning and call him up <laughs> and say boom you know no anxiety just panic as it turns out i decided to wait until sunday morning and then i felt not great but too bad to Give him last-minute notice, so you'll have to suffer through it. So here we go. Uh, Which is all to say, you know, be a little bit tolerant with me this morning. We'll make it. Uh, Now, we dedicated children this morning. And one of the questions we ask in the course of dedication is, do you give this child back to God for however he may want to use her or him in life? Now, we ask that really early, because parents have no idea what that might entail yet. They may have some theoretical idea, but until it actually comes time where maybe God wants their child to move overseas into an underserved area and use their vocation and use that opportunity to spread the gospel, or until it comes time that God actually calls their son or daughter to leave that vocation, And go into Christian vocational ministry, the parents really don't know all that's involved. The thought of being separated from your kids for four or five years at a time or your grandkids, you know, that doesn't occur to parents when they're dedicating their children. So we get them young before they realize what's going on. Make them sign a form, you know, we have this thing and we laminate it so that later on if they back out, we can say, here, you signed this a long time ago. God challenges us. He challenges our cultural values, our commitments. You know, I I think probably for Asians, this thing about children is one of the biggest concerns we have, that they grow up comfortable and well-educated, that they be successful in life. For Anglos, too, we want to be caring for our children and providing for them. One of the biggest challenges that Irene and I faced, whether Asian or American, one of the biggest challenges we faced when we were overseas is the implications that being overseas had for our children. It's okay for me, for Irene, we signed up for this, but what about the implications for our children? When I was overseas, I had a colleague who taught with me for a few years, and then he was uh, Asian, Then his father, who was in California, said, look, I'm getting old, I want you back in California. I want to be near you. I want you to be near me. I want your children, my grandchildren to be near me. And my colleague felt called to be in Singapore and his parents called him to be in California. So he picked up and he moved to California because the calling of parents is greater than the calling of God. Sometimes, in Asian culture. And one of them, the the principal was actually talking to us, and he turned, uh, explaining the situation, and he turned to those of us who are Westerners and said, we know you don't understand this. Oh, well, we do understand it, you know. But I came back over to uh, U.S., and I was speaking to a group of seminarians, and I was explaining this. The challenge it is for Asians to go into vocational, or let their children go into vocational Christian ministry or to let their children go overseas. And one of the Americans in a a U.S. (laughs) seminary class said to me, don't they know what Jesus said about if you don't love me more than you love your mother and your father, your sister and your brother? How do they deal with that? And after just a moment's thought, it occurred to me, well, don't we as Americans know what Jesus said about he who doesn't provide for his father and mother is worse than a pagan? And yet, how many Americans give money to their parents, as so many Asians do? Each side, each culture, tends to read the Bible through a screen. We all tend to read the Bible through a screen of cultural values. We see in the Bible what corresponds to our culture. And we miss in the Bible what violates our culture. You could argue that we are each more Chinese or American than we are Christian, at least by nature. For all of our lives, we're brought up in a culture that conditions how we view things. And so even when we become Christians, it becomes kind of an overlay on our cultural values. And it's really hard even to identify our cultural values one of the uh, greatest advantages to living in a cross cultural situation or to worshipping in a cross cultural multicultural church one of the greatest advantages is we get to see the life we get to see life through the eyes of some other culture now being in asia taught me a fair bit about chinese culture but being in asia taught me a fair bit more about american culture because i'd see some of my colleagues doing things and I think, that's odd. And then you learn to be say, why does that seem odd to me? Because it doesn't seem odd to them. And it helps you understand your own culture and, and how your culture may be blinding you to some of the things that scripture is calling us to. This passage really is about the intersection of culture and Christian faith. And it calls us to follow Jesus even in the midst of our culture, and to follow Jesus in ways that are sometimes countercultural. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter six. The, the, the passage makes only two basic points. Now if you use your Pew Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen, that is page eight hundred and nineteen in the Pew Bible. Uh, Turn with me to it, because we're going to look through in some detail. Now, this passage makes only two basic points. It makes each point several times. Take a look at the first point. His first point is this. We must follow Christ, not our culture. See how he makes that point in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, actually, we we were so used to this. right? And the the interpreters, the translators are so used to it, they still use the phrase yoked together. It doesn't actually necessarily mean yoked together, and it doesn't necessarily refer to marriage, mixed marriage. The same language is used in Leviticus 19. The same language is used in Deuteronomy 22. In both passages, what uh, the Old Testament says is this. Don't join two unlike things together closely. So some examples it gives in the Old Testament. If you've got two different animals, if you've got a horse and a donkey, don't mate them. Don't mate two different kinds of animals. If you're planting a field, don't plant two kinds of seeds in the one field. If you're making clothes, don't mix linen and cotton, either all linen or all cotton. If you're planting a vineyard, don't mix two kinds of seeds. If you're plowing, don't have, don't, Yoked together an ox and an ass. Don't mix two different kinds of things. Again, if you're making clothing, not two different kinds of gar- Not Garment not made from two different raw materials. Don't be yoked together, joined, to- joined together is the simplest thing. Don't tie these two things together in an unbreakable bond. And so he's saying to Christians, don't be joined together in a fixed relationship. With unbelievers. Verse 17, he repeats the idea. Uh, Verse 17a. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. See, you're a different kind of people. Come out and be different. Be be separate. And, And this is a quotation back from Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, God's people were in exile among the Babylonians. And God brought them out of exile. He says, look, when you come back out of exile, when you leave Babylon, and when you come to the new country, don't bring their stuff with you. Don't bring their culture. Don't bring their ways of doing things. Don't bring their idols and their gods to worship. Come out from them and be separate. Be different. Because you are different, he says. And he repeats the same idea again in chapter 7, verse 1. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Let us purify ourselves from every contamination of body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence and fear of God. The first point he's making in this text is, as Christians, we must be different. The second point he makes is why we should be different. We We must be different because we are different. You see back in verses uh, 14 and following. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial or Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now, this is very strong language. and he's not saying we can't have anything to do with anybody else. But what he's saying is that there's a characteristic difference. There's two ways of moving in life. And one group and the other group, they're headed in different directions. So we don't try to move together, join together. Uh, verse 16, he, he also explains again why we should live differently. Because we are different. Verse 16, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. His point is that we're part of the family of God. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. We're the temple of God. We're the people of God. And so we have to live differently because we are different. We don't worship the same because we worship a different God. We don't live the same because we're part of a different family. And then he repeats the same idea again in verse chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, since God is our Father, and he's promised us life. Let us live differently. Because we are different, he says. Therefore, let us diff- live differently. Let's talk concretely about what some of this means. What, let's talk about, think about what it meant for them. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is a subsequent letter. You know, the earlier letter was 1 Corinthians. Basically, uh, 1 Corinthians is full of all sorts of problems the church was facing. The church had... Uh, th- Almost all the problems in 1st Corinthians can be attributed to their culture. They were not thinking like Christians. They were not living like Christians. They were thinking and living like Greeks, like Corinthians. And so in in 1st Corinthians, they had particular expectations. Their culture had particular expectations of public speaking. What should a public speaker be like? And they had cultural expectations. And they were bringing them into the church and imposing them on Paul. How about personal freedom? They had particular expectations of personal freedom. And they were bringing them in and imposing them on Paul. They had certain attitudes from their culture about the sex industry. And even though they were Christians, they were bringing those attitudes about the sex industry into the church and living the same way. Uh, They had particular values of marriage. And even though they'd come to faith in Christ, they were bringing their pagan values of marriage into the church they had particular practices in worship and community life, and they brought those into their Christian faith. At every point, you could say, all the problems in the church in Corinth were related to the fact that they were more Greek or Roman. They were more Corinthian than they were Christian. And so Paul says, and this is the essence of his conflict with them is, his message to them is this, don't be yoked together. Don't share these same values. Be different, because you are different. In our situation, let's think concretely about some of this. In church life, you know, one of the things we ask as a multicultural church, or at least a bicultural church, one of the things we ask is, are we Chinese or are we American? Or... Given the fact that you know we all know false disjunctions, dichotomies, and so forth. So, to what extent, in what respect, are we Chinese, and to what respect, to what extent, are we American? You know what we both have to. And sometimes, actually, there's there's differences of or there's conflict. Or no, no, there's. Mm, I don't want to pick this too strongly. Sometimes there's discomfort between CM and EM. Because you've got overseas culture and kind of indigenous culture, localized culture. Take leadership, for example. If you think about Chinese leader, traditional overseas-born Chinese older generation leadership practices, what do you have? Right? You've got the hierarchicalism. You've got the father. Right? The father makes the decisions and, and tells the son or daughters what to do, the family what to do. You know what Confucius said. You know a truly filial son, and every son, the the key thing in a son is he must be filial. you know a truly filial son because three years after his father died, he still does everything his father told him to do the way his father told him to do it. If you're Chinese culture, as a son, you will always obey the father. My father-in-law was a very gracious fellow. One of the tips he gave me was how to make these uh, brooms that you sweep the floor with in Asia, these soft brooms, how to make them last longer. And his idea was you take two pieces of wood and you attach them around the broom so that the f- fronds don't fall out of the broom and so it stays together longer. Well, it take the brooms cost two bucks. I mean, that's two bucks. Two ringgit, two dollars Malaysian, which is about 80 cents US. It's not worth the trouble, you know. But if I'm going to be respectful, then I will take two pieces of wood and attach them and tie the broom up and keep it last longer. Now, how, do you th- how is American authority structured? I do what I want. Right? And so how, you, well, how is authority going to work in a multicultural church? For Chinese, one way of authority seems natural, and for Americans, a much different way of authority seems natural. And the risk is that each of us will act from a cultural perspective rather than from a biblical perspective. How does the gospel affect how we exercise authority? A lot of people use this passage to urge Christians to marry only Christians. And it's certainly legitimate to use that way. Okay? I mean, the the, the passage does not explicitly apply to that. And the word yoke does not necessarily imply marriage, but it's certainly true. This is a binding relationship. Husband and wife, this is a binding relationship. Christians should only marry Christians. But boy, it goes much deeper than that. Thinking about marriage does what we expect as Christians, does what we expect from marriage differ from what our non-believing friends expect from marriage? The divorce rate among practicing Christians is not as high as among non-believers. Our divorce rate is, you know, the statistics analysis, if you look at people who go to church, people who go to church do not divorce at the same rate as people who don't go to church. There is a difference. A slight difference. Why only slight? You know, why are we getting married? And what do we expect from marriage? You know, our culture trains us to expect romance. And relatively easy romance. Not the challenge of living together every day. And so when marriage gets challenging, what do we do? Our culture says you tried, you really gave it your best effort, uh, it didn't work out, these things happen, God will give you a second chance. You know, and we bring God into it. It's really culture, but we bring God into it. It's kind of blasphemy that we bring his name into it. How does being a Christian affect our cultural values toward marriage? how about it? how does how does being a christian affect our jobs you know i think that we have sense that you know certain jobs we should not be in because we're christians you know we should not be bene, we should not be beneficiaries of the sex industry we should not invest in the sex industry we should not run you know we should not be pimps we should not run brothels because we're christians Maybe we shouldn't run. You know, maybe we shouldn't sell. Uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't run a liquor store because we're Christians. And maybe we shouldn't be involved in. Uh, maybe we shouldn't run lotteries or these gaming establishments. I forget what they're called. You know, Foxborough, Foxwoods, not Foxborough, Foxwoods, that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, maybe we, sh- we should at least think about, should we be working for an arms manufacturer as Christians? And we, we think th- at that level often. But how about this? A- as Christians, what do we think about the huge disparity between CEO salaries and entry-level salaries? The huge disparity, which is growing huger vastly greater every decade. Is it enough that I do my job with integrity and I get paid a lot? Or should I try to change the system? Do not be yoked together. Don't all be joined together with unbelievers. The warning is not to bring cultural values entirely into what we do as Christians. how about Christians in politics? You know, there was a, a time ago, uh, maybe I'll try not to keep, use names in this, you know, that we had an evangelical president. Well, we've had several evangelical presidents, so I can avoid names maybe. But then, when somebody is no longer president, how do they, how do they help their party while still representing the gospel? Politics is so partisan today. How does a Christian in politics, visibly a Christian, everybody knows they're a Christian, how does a Christian stand up in politics today and say, I'm a Christian, and endorse one party over the other party? Uh, How do we do this without being bound together? What this text is warning us is, is against two different things. We don't want to be involved in a relationship between unlike, two unlike substances, two unlike peoples, two unlike directions of life. We don't want to bind these two together in a way that determines how we have to act or in, or in a way that influences how people perceive the gospel. And it urges us to avoid cultural conformity. Now here's some other examples. Take a look at the front of your bulletin. You'll find in the front of your bulletin, there's a cross there. And there's four values. Oh, no, there's four icons down, running, down the cross, running down the vertical bar on the cross. The, the, the point of this is it reflects our, it represents, this is a picture of our core values as a congregation. We are cross-centered or we are God-centered rather than narcissistic. We are, and, and each of these is a contrast. We are you know, our five core values. We are God-centered. We are biblical, we seek to be biblical. We are missional. We are communal. We are transformational. You see those little labels down by each icon: God-centered, biblical, missional, communal, transformational. Each of them implicitly contrasts with a cultural value. We are God-centered, not narcissistic. But well, this is our aim, to be God-centered, not narcissistic. Is this really what we are? Consider this. Why did you become a Christian? What was it that drew you to Christ? In my case, it was, I, was, I had really no purpose for life. I had no direction in life, no, no ultimate reason to be alive. If this is all it is, and it ends, and there's no deeper significance to it, why bother? So, God promised meaning in my life and purpose and direction. And I grabbed hold of that, like a dying man for a drink of water. Well, then I realized from Maslow's hierarchy, that's a normal human drive. I came to God looking for meaning in life. Or maybe you were afraid of dying and God offered you life after this. Or maybe you were anxious, and God offered you security. You see, God is very kind and condescending. He'll offer us what it takes to get us to come to him. But that is entirely narcissistic. That's not God-directed. And then often, you know, this, this first stage of Christianity, the first stage of faith is finding in Jesus the answer to everything we've wanted. And it seems like the second stage, Jesus pulls that away. And you think, it's like bait and switch. you know. It's like some dubious ethics uh, salesman. But maybe what he's doing is pulling away, us away from loving what he gives us so that we love him, teaching us not to be narcissistic, but to be God-centered. We, we seek to be cultural, because by nature, we're actually... I'm sorry, we seek to be biblical because by nature we're actually cultural. We seek to be missional. It's what God has called us to be rather than consumerist. It's not about well, but, well, what we get. Let me give you a controversial example. Think about, we're going to go sending people out on short-term missions soon. Let's think about short-term missions for a minute. A non-believing parents send their kids on enriching experiences overseas to study or to tour when they're in high school? How does that differ from us sending our children on overseas experiences while they're in high school? Uh, To what extent are are our short-term mission trips enriching experiences for those who go and what extent are they contributing experiences to the work of God? We seek to be communal rather than individual. In our small groups why are we part of the small if we enjoy our small group why do we enjoy it? Uh, If we are frustrated with our small group why are we frustrated with it? Uh, are we coming because we like to be hanging out with other people of the same age? How does that differ from a, a group of friends from work that go out to the pub on a Friday night? Well, we go to church, we don't drink booze, we, you know, there's a pub and there's a booze, but how is there a difference in the cultural value? Are our small groups anything different than a group of like-minded people? Hanging out together, enjoying each other, because we all need friendship. Transformational versus transactional. You know, really, here's the thing. Often Christianity is, you know, often the gospel is this, that Jesus died for my sin, so I can be forgiven. Transactional. There's a transaction. My sin is passed to him, he dies. His holiness is passed to me, I live. And that's all there is to it. I mean, that's a great deal. Entirely cultural. You know, somebody gives me something and I don't have to give anything in return. Uh, But we proclaim a gospel that's transformational. Uh, God does not just send Christ to die for my sin and leave it at that. He wants to change me from the inside so that I become God directed, I become biblical, I become missional, I become communal. I'm transformed. In a great many ways, our faith tends naturally to be cultural and self-centered. What this passage calls us to is to identify ways in which actually our faith has changed us so that we're not cultural, but we're biblical. That It's not about what we're getting from God, about how we're serving him, Paul calls us not just to personal relationships which are uniquely Christian, but to deeper underlying values which are uniquely Christian. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them and be their God. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence. Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot of ways in which we can use our culture to further the gospel. And there's a lot of ways that the gospel comes in and meets our culturally driven needs. But we pray, Father, that you would help us That we might discern what is actually cultural and what is actually biblical. That we might be more than just Asians or Americans. But that we might be Christians. That we might be more than simply products of our culture. That we might be products of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.